Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am your running buddy. And I am well above the action line. This is a reference, by the way, to Tiny Habits. A bit of background. I have been studying behavior change for over a decade. Ultimately, it is very rarely knowledge that is holding people back when it comes to making changes in their lives. So what is it? A lot of people will tell you that it's motivation. I know what to do. I just need more motivation. I need more discipline. So why can't we just conjure up motivation whenever we want to? Or is it possible that we're over-indexing motivation when there are some better, more accessible and reliable tools available. I got into tiny habits at the beginning of 2020, just before the shit hit the fan with the pandemic. The book had just come out and I picked it up because, you know, I just read whatever comes out on the subject. I'd heard of BJ Fogg, but I wasn't planning on anything dramatic or revelatory. Maybe I'd pick up a couple of tips or tactics, I thought. What I found, though, was a cogent, organized explanation of everything I knew to work when it came to behavior change, and then some. The book also challenged me to go tinier. I'd long bought into the idea that small changes could make a difference, but I had a limit. I noticed that if I wanted to shrink change down below a certain scale, I had an internal resistance. And I've learned to love that resistance over the years. I lean right into it. So... You know, I thought that if I had a knee-jerk reaction to this type of practice, that probably meant that I hadn't done it in a long time, maybe ever. So I designed a habit as sort of an experiment. The type of habit would be referred to as a pearl habit. BJ's sister, Linda, really gets the credit for this one. A pearl habit uses an unpleasant sensation as a prompt. It could be pain, it could be anxiety, and just like when a clam is irritated by a piece of sand something beautiful emerges. That is a pearl habit. So here we are. It's the beginning of the pandemic. We don't know yet how COVID is spreading. And I found myself holding my breath every time I passed someone on the street. I noticed all this tension bound up in how I was breathing. So I decided that every time I notice that I'm feeling stressed, I will take at least two mindful breaths. Nothing dramatic, right? But That ability to calm myself in the moment, and especially during that particular time, opened up a window, and it began showing up in all kinds of places in my life. There's a quote you've probably heard, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. That is, of course, from Viktor Frankl who survived uh, the Nazi concentration camps. And for me, those two deep breaths were a wedge into the space he was talking about. So I dove into the material. I did the coaching certification with BJ and Linda, and I even began working with them in the Tiny Habits community. And that is where I met today's guest. Andrea Spiros is a speaker and Tiny Habits coach. She is an expert in behavior design, and she's someone I've collaborated with on all kinds of projects, and we always have a good time. So I brought her in to talk about motivation and Tiny Habits. Before we get started, 
First of all, I hope you're subscribing to this podcast. Uh, I also want to remind you that as you listen, if you have questions or ideas, you can share them by going to dadstrength.com slash feedback. You can also go there if you want to book a time to learn about getting coaching from me or to find out about in-person workshops. Just let me know. Hit me up there. I'll get back to you. Now for my interview with Andrea Spiros. Let's get into it. The Tiny Habits Method by BJ Fogg is basically the simplest method for forming habits. And it's based on how um, behavior really works. And motivation is key in this because it's really taken out of the picture by picking something that you already want to do. All right. So if you already want to do something, then you have some motivation to do it. And I think that's really the biggest place that the tiny habits method solves for motivation is that it encourages you to pick something you already want to do. The second way it solves for motivation is by making that action or that behavior very tiny so that it doesn't really require motivation to do. So if we're talking push-ups, then I'm just going to pick, first of all, I'm going to pick push-ups if I want to do push-ups. So I'm, I'm not going to pick that, but I could pick like a wall press up. I might do that. So I'm going to pick the press up against the wall that I want to do. And then I'm just going to pick a number that's very small that I think I could do on my worst day when I didn't get any sleep, when my alarm didn't go off, when the, you know, my bathroom flooded, I could still do that activity. You know, the idea of going grocery shopping on a full stomach we wind up making better decisions than when we're hangry and impatient and impulsive. So it's helpful to think about goals and planning in the same way. Now, BJ Fogg doesn't use the word goal in behavior design because it's too vague. He is a stickler for language, but he'll use outcome or aspiration. No matter how you slice it, though, we want to plan our future actions from a calm thoughtful, non-reactive place. What we don't want to do is set ourselves up for frustration. And that is why it's so helpful to be a motivation pessimist. Here's what that means within the tiny habits method. You're planning actions to take you to the outcomes you want to work out three times a week, maybe to increase your vegetable intake, to practice gratitude, all good stuff. Whatever it is, you need to be pragmatic about the level of motivation required. And the harder it is to do, the more motivation you'll require. So if the action requires consistently high levels of motivation, which is to say it's difficult, you have to figure out whether that's even realistic. It might be if we're talking about something absolutely massive, like you've had an epiphany, as James Fell did in episode 21. And in this case, you're ready to change everything and organize your life around that principle. Sometimes that happens, but most of the time it's less dramatic than that. And your motivation is affected by things like stress levels at work and sleep quality and relationships, many factors. If you are rigid in your application, in what you envision the practice of this action is, the first day that some kind of unexpected emergency happens, it's going to shake you. And if that emergency topples a few more dominoes like sleep quality, stress levels, and your schedule, you may lose a week or two. And at that point, you might feel frustrated. A lot of people give up here. But what if your workouts were simply standing on top of the treadmill and hitting start? or eating a single baby carrot, or, you know, to think of one 
person in your life you appreciate? What if the baseline for ticking that box only took 20 to 30 seconds and you never missed practice? What if you rigged the system for daily success? I know what the objection is to this, by the way. What if I get complacent? What if I start giving myself credit for small achievements and taking pride in humble progress and, and? This is the much feared participant badge. And the implication is that if I take satisfaction in a small thing, I will become less motivated to do a large thing. So first of all, there's no evidence to support that idea. The only time that this is a factor is when rewards are external and they are motivating you to do something that you don't really care about. We talked about that in our last episode with Alfie Cohn. But tiny habits is not a system to motivate yourself to do things that you don't want to do. It's a system that asks you what you already care about and have an intrinsic motivation to do. And if you think about taking a tiny bite of your favorite snack or spending 30 seconds on your favorite hobby or pastime, you will find it's really easy to do more. You're already set up to do it. Now, some days constraints on your abilities will not allow for that. So you will keep the machinery well-oiled. You practice the art of starting. You become an expert, as a matter of fact, at starting. And for harder things, there will be occasional days that this is as far as it goes. But you never miss a beat. And when time and motivation open up, it's right there. You are so well-practiced that you can just start and lean into it. And what I really like about all of this is it moves the discussion away from things that we don't have so much control over, that's motivation, and into skills. This is all a learnable, practicable skill and you can get better at it. And that begins to form your identity. And when we shift away from older identities, more fixed ones, it becomes liberating. But first you may have to shed some old identities. When we globalize motivation and say like, I'm I'm unmotivated, I'm lazy, I'm undisciplined, I lack willpower. When we say any of those things to ourselves, they're usually, we're globalizing, but they're toward a specific something, right? So, so it'd be like, oh, I'm so unmotivated because maybe I didn't take my walk today, right? But I globalize it that I am. So we, and I make it about who I am as a person, not just about that action. And then we don't realize that we are motivated toward things at every given moment. So I was not motivated toward a walk, but I was motivated toward resting in my bed. I was super highly motivated to that. As a matter of fact, it was cozy. The birds were chirping outside. The sun was dappling through the trees. But we never say to ourselves, man, I'm so highly motivated to stay in my bed all cozy, like good for me. I'm totally motivated. I mean, that is a valid, that's a valid part of that equation. Okay. Now we're getting into something really juicy and I'm so glad we're doing this. I am on the topic of motivation, supremely motivated to share this with you because I have met a lot of people over the years who have been not so great at matching their motivation to their ability level or what they have access to. And this is a skill. This is a learnable skill. But instead of looking at it through that lens, it is often tempting to say, well, I'm bad at this. I have failed many times. 
when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to exercise, things that are important to you, right? But that you might've struggled with. And I would submit that if you keep coming up with this same kind of issue, well, you've got lots of motivation. You might also have some complexity in it in terms of baggage at this point, but that's okay too. The real sort of leap of faith here is to say, hey, what if I were pessimistic about the amount of motivation I will have in the future? What if it will shrink down to very low levels? Do I have a version of action that I can take in those moments? And I am aware that for a lot of people, the idea of tiny actions having real value is a stretch. It is wildly counterintuitive. So I'm not going to ask you to onboard that just yet. Just sit with it. But just for contrast's sake, let's imagine motivation as this cure-all, like one of the infinity stones. And if you can just get your hands on that, if you could just plunk that motivational stone into your gauntlet, everything would change. Is that really how it works, though? I think the other big piece of that is that we can't, we literally can't be motivated toward everything all the time, everywhere, all at once, right? Because it, it would be pandemonium in our lives. If we were both highly motivated to be on this recording and sleeping and cooking dinner and doing art and working out, I mean, how would we ever choose? Like talk about a, a field day of, of stuckness, right? So Part of a mindset shift with motivation is like, what am I highly motivated towards? And I can celebrate that. What would I like to move towards? And how can I remove the motivation piece by either making it tiny or matching myself with a different action that actually matches my motivation level? And so maybe it's after I get out of bed and stand up, my feet hit the floor. My bed is kind of close to the wall. I'm going to lean my hands against the wall and do two press ups. And then I'm going to celebrate and go like, good for me. There's so many ways that motivation is kind of intrinsically entangled with things that we don't realize. One of the most important things that motivation is paired with is your ability to do something. So while we might want to think of motivation in isolation, it really has a teammate that is your ability to do something. So when something is easy to do, it doesn't take a lot of motivation to do something. So when something is hard to do, you might need more motivation to do it. And you can reverse engineer that and, and, and leverage your low motivation by saying, oh, you know, I'm feeling tired or I'm stressed. What is a small action I can take to leverage my low motivation? And then when you have all the energy in the world, you got the best night's sleep, you had, you know, prime food and uh, did everything that was, you know, filled your bucket inside and you're feeling pumped and excited. And you can harness that high motivation and say like, what are those really hard things that I've been wanting to do that I haven't gotten to? And then you can do those. And I think that pairing of motivation and ability, when you think about them like teammates, it's a useful framework from the FOG behavior model to help you get things done that you want to do and to stop judging yourself because you're matching, uh, you're, 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 you're getting them to to play like the teammates they are. A great analogy that I often use uh, as a Californian is one of going to the beach. And if you went to the beach 
and you wanted to surf and you had your surfboard and your surf equipment and your wetsuit, because in Southern California, you still do need a wetsuit most times of the year. Well, if the waves weren't there, if the ocean was flat, you would just not surf. You might take out a floaty, you might just walk along the beach, you might go for a swim, but you just wouldn't surf. But here's the other thing that you wouldn't do. You would not say to yourself, man, I am so unmotivated because I'm not surfing. I am the laziest person in the world because I'm not surfing or I'm so undisciplined. I, w- I went to the beach, but I didn't surf. Like that, those things seem ludicrous when I say them because they would just never occur to you. And yet every time we don't have high motivation, just like we don't have high waves and we're not doing something, we judge ourselves. And in, in the converse, if you went to the beach with a floaty and you were going to float and then you saw these great waves, you would just naturally say, oh, you know what? I got my surfboard and I love surfing. There's waves today. I'm going to jump on that. Much in the same way, if you had high motivation, you could you know, harness that high motivation. I love this analogy from Andy, and I think it really captures things beautifully. There are a number of factors outside of our control, and sometimes that is motivation. But I love a good metaphor, so I want to build off of Andy's idea around waves coming in and out. How we harness motivation also can vary, and we require as she was saying, a match between motivation and ability. So this is where we can put skills to work. So if you are highly motivated to surf, and now we're seeing a big wave coming, but you don't own a surfboard, you're not going to be able to capitalize on that. There's some setup required, and sometimes that setup is with skills, and sometimes that setup is with systems and support networks And by the way, we can break this down into a formula. This is what BJ Fogg does. He says a behavior takes place when three things come together at the same time, motivation, ability, and a prompt. So we've spoken lots about motivation. Uh, Ability sort of works in opposition to a lot of times because the harder something is to do, the more motivation we need to do it. But also the easier it is for you, this is subjective, the less motivation you need. And then finally, a prompt because you need to remember to do it when everything else is there. Coming back to Andy's ocean metaphor, what I really like about this is that you were working with what you've got and what you're not doing is staring out at the ocean and trying to, through sheer will, force a wave to come. It's a lot of mental energy for something that is beyond your control. Here's the thing, I can't surf. Right. I can snowboard, but I can't surf. So, so this plays beautifully into it because I would never go to the ocean expecting to surf. And if I did, no matter what kind of waves, there, they'd be the perfect waves. Like you could tell me like, these are the absolute perfect waves. Like there's no way I'm going to be able to do that, but I'm also not going to feel bad about it because I don't have the skill and I, and I don't own a surfboard. So I don't have the skill and I don't have the tool And so I'm just not going to do it, but I'm also not going to judge myself of it. And I think in real life, what happens is people tend to, again, they're thinking about the sole outcome, you know, whether it's surfing or making a million dollars or six pack abs, right? Not thinking about, do I have the tools? Do I have the skills or do I need to get some of those? 
I think it's really interesting how often motivation and ability are kind of mashed together and conflated, you know, where you have this idea of, I really want to go after this particular outcome. So I just have to motivate myself. I have to try really, really hard. And the whole point of ability is it makes things easier. And one of the um, great insights from Tiny Habits is that depending on the level of motivation you have, you might make different types of choices. So if your motivation is low, well, how do you roll with that? I mean, that's part of the magic. We're going to choose something that is low tech, that is easy and accessible to you, something you can take action on right now. On the other hand, if motivation is really high, how do we harness that? And in this case, it wouldn't be through conventional action. Like if your aspiration was to eliminate ultra processed foods from your diet, as an example, great aspiration that generally trends very well when it comes to health outcomes. How would you do that? It would not be walking into a place with a lot of, you know, whatever your trigger foods might be, and then just exercising discipline. Instead, you would take that surplus of motivation and you would invest it into something that will make further action easier. And that includes the days where motivation is low. So this might be clearing these things out of the house, or it might be learning more about nutrition or becoming a better chef or even buying tools to make preparation of healthy foods easier to do at home, improving your ability to do this. Actually, while we're on the subject, I'm going to share one of my favorite snack stalling tactics. So if it is later in the evening and I'm feeling snacky, so I'm not in the habit of saying no or being very restrictive about eating, but I can add frictions to the process. So one of my favorite things to do is uh, I'm, I'm peckish. I want to eat something. I like fermented foods. So whether we're talking about sauerkraut or kimchi or dill pickles, all that stuff hits right for me. It's zingy. It's flavorful. It has fiber and contributes to the flora in my gut. And as it turns out, has next to no calories. And one of the reasons that this works so well for me is because it is a beautiful fit of motivation and ability. Generally, my motivation is lowest toward the end of the day, so I need something really easy and with some enjoyment factory installed, and that's where I go with this. So you can see how I've matched these two qualities, but that's not something that I always did instinctively. And indeed, I think a lot of people don't consider that sort of pairing. You know, it occurred to me that there's often a narrative that many people have that's like the background music of their day, that they're not motivated, they're lazy, they're not achieving enough, that really is, un I'll just say, unhelpful to moving forward. But it's also sometimes unconscious, it's kind of baked in. It doesn't have to stay that way. But I, I think that... That's that seems to be the the thread here is that there is a little bit of like, am I the asshole? I haven't achieved this. And I think what the really curious thing is, is that, I mean, you and I have achieved success in our life, what many people would think of as great success. And I think 
there's a number of people who are very successful who don't think of themselves as being particularly highly motivated or they think of themselves as lacking willpower discipline or any of these things we've been talking about and i think it's like a shameful secret of of some high achievers right that no one no one shares very openly that yeah i had a million dollar business but i also had days i didn't feel like doing anything I'm like yeah, I, you know, I did this very hard thing that many people haven't done, but I also, you know, streamed a lot of home shows a few Saturdays, <laughs> you know, like right, they, motivation is also invisible. So we don't really see what's going on for other people. And we just assume that if they have that outcome, they must have worked hard. They must have sacrificed, you know, they, they must've done a whole lot of things and they probably did. You know, so I'm not taking anything off of that, but just like we talk about motivation being a wave and harnessing the high motivation, you know, surfing when it's high and leveraging the low motivation when the, when the ocean's flat and just kind of floating, um, that happens in real life too. All right. Here's the scenario. It's 1.30 PM on a weekday afternoon. You have an important thing that you want to be working on. However, you're also feeling sleepy and you're not really firing on all cognitive cylinders. You're not in a position to do your best work. So the question here is what you do. And I can answer this because I've done it wrong more times than I can count. And more recently in my life, I've learned to do it right, or at least by my standards. And here's the deal. Maybe the best thing to be doing in these moments has nothing to do with that major project. Maybe we have to look at the resources, and I mean attention span and focus, our ability to engage in creative problem solving, all that stuff. We have to say, what have I got right now? And maybe there are smaller potatoes that I can apply this to, or hold on to your hats. Maybe we don't do anything at all. Maybe we go for a walk. Maybe we meditate or close our eyes or turn off sensory stimuli. I know what doing it wrong feels like, which is to perpetually want to be doing this big thing, but also getting distracted and checking social media and putting in a level of mental effort that is commensurate with what you would be doing if you were really getting stuff done but also not really getting any stuff done. And where does that leave us? Um, frustrated, feeling fatigued, right? So even though we haven't been particularly productive, we are also less ready to do something great when the moment strikes. So I think it's worth noting that this pushes hard against a lot of our cultural narratives and sort of Protestant work ethic and whatever other baggage that we have. But maybe... Sometimes the best way to be productive, the best action to take is no action at all. Erase all the other bit about what you should be doing, what you could be doing, what other people say you should do, and just concentrate on what do you want to do, right? And what, what matches that level. And then like har harness the high motivation, like definitely surf those high waves, but don't expect yourself to stay on the wave because it's going to come to shore at some point. 
And, and I think when we can think about motivation in that way, we will have a healthier internal environment that will free up that energy to do more of what we want to do. It's a really nice way to say this. It is less about motivation and more about clarity. What is really important to you? Figuring that out and orienting your actions around that can start to shift things in some really surprising ways. Now, this was a great discussion, and I think we captured a lot of what's really important here. But I wanted to ask Andrea one more question. She's a mom. She's got two teenagers. And as someone with formal training in behavior design, as someone who teaches this, I wanted to know how she approaches using these principles with her kids. For sure. There's ways that I do integrate behavior design into my family life. And mostly it is with reminding myself that the behavior I might want my child to do might not be matched with what they want to do. And so a lot of my work as a parent is to either be okay with what they've chosen to do and or help them find a way to match their behaviors so to their motivation level so that they can feel successful. And it's a new skill. You know, it really is a new skill to help them think about it in that way and then use that during their life. And I'm going to quote you on this, that um, you are never a sage in your own home. (laughs) So even though I know a lot about behavior design, I do get some eye rolls uh, and like, oh, don't do that habit stuff with me. Right. And so part of my job as a parent is to uh, kind of set the space for them to ask. And then when they want to, you know, want to hear about it, then they can receive. And until then, I have to just be okay with them, whatever walls they, you know, hit, whatever frustrations they hit and and kind of know that they're going to be okay. They're smart kids. We want a lot for our kids and among a lot of my friends um, and myself included, when we don't make all the right moves as parents, it's almost invariably from a place of, of wanting a lot and just wanting to control outcomes. We do. We, we wish we could ensure an absolutely safe and successful future for our kids. But the principles here still apply and that is we have to consult, we have to really be curious and find out what is important to them because only then can we begin to build. As for motivation, it's just like money, isn't it? Everybody wants to make more, but it is way less sexy to talk about saving more, about spending it less recklessly. But if we think about our own internal environment and our stress level and all the sort of cognitive work we do to negotiate and try to push against what we're working with at any given time, what if you could let all of that go and just tune in to the amount of motivation you have, tune in to the abilities that you have, how you can harness that in the moment, do what you can, celebrate it, and then leave it all behind. So I think that if we want to wrap this up and put a bow 
on my interview with my colleague and friend, Andrea Spiros. I would say this, I would say that the skill of applying the tiny habits framework actually frees us to be more present because we can use what we've got and all of that information exists in the moment. Like Arthur Ashe said, start where you are, use what you've got, do what you can. And so we do. And then we move on, we let it go. I want to thank my guest, Andrea Spiros, for joining me today. We've had a lot of chats on the topic of tiny habits over the last couple of years, both on the mic and off. And she's always got insight. She's always got a way to capture it and make it personal, make it human. So always fun to chat with her. The work we're addressing is, of course, from BJ Fogg. He has mentored us both. and. To me, he is someone who is really trying to put the tools for positive change into people's hands. And what I like about this in particular is that it is, it is bottom up. It is from you. It asks the question of what is important to you and helps you make that actionable. So I hope you found this valuable. Again, I have a uh, form on the site, dadstrength.com slash feedback. You can share your observations and questions. If you are trying to figure this out, of course, you can get the book. You can also do the free five-day course at tinyhabits.com. If you're interested in having Andrea speak at an event, you can go to her website, andreaspiros.com. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production with title music by Daniel Ross. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you soon.